Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Edward Thornton was bloody tired. His regiment had taken a beating, that was for sure, but by God did they earn their pay today. Cromwell had commanded Thornton's regiment of dragoons to ride ahead of the main army and take a position just a stone's throw away from the royalist cuirassiers. Bloody risky move that was, but it had paid off. They'd unleashed hell on the cavaliers. He swore he got a shot off on the German prince himself, but others said the same thing, and honestly, who could tell? They were probably all wrong. He'd seen Rupert's banner keep flying. They'd spent the rest of the battle in a firefight with two regiments of royalist musketeers, and then when they ran off, Colonel Oakey had them mount up again and help surround the rest of the enemy. Now here he was, slumped in his saddle, watching as what must have been thousands of men, just like him, march past on the way to whatever place could be found to hold them. He rubbed at the side of his cheek, where his beard had been singed from constantly firing his carbine. He was filthy with dirt and soot, He'd lost his hat at some point, and there was blood on his coat. He didn't think it was his, but it blended with the red dye of his jacket, and he couldn't tell where it started. Colonel Oki was riding up and down the line, praising individual troopers for their conduct in the battle. He reached Thornton and shook his hand. Just a few words of praise, a shared joke about how it was a shame he'd missed the German prince, and Oki moved on. Thornton liked his colonel. He was a good man, a godly man and the new army was full of men like him. As Thornton watched the captured royalists walk by, he felt an old anger rise. Not at them, not really. There but by the grace of God, Thornton thought to himself. He'd been with the Parliament since his Lord Manchester had called for volunteers to defend the liberties of Englishmen, to help free his majesty from the evil councillors who had led him so astray. That had been three years ago, and Thornton had long ago realised the king wasn't being led astray. He was leading the kingdom astray, and the death and destruction which had visited England these past three years was on his head. If he wouldn't stop, then the free men of England would make him. The army would make him. General Fairfax and General Cromwell would make him. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 55. Peace, if you can keep it. 
Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by the Earl of Concord, Eli Duggan, Chip, Viscount Ballymurray, and Christopher Meadowcroft has been promoted to Viscount Meadowcroft. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we saw the great and decisive Battle of Naseby on the 14th of June, 1645. The new model army, led by Sir Thomas Fairfax, with Sir Philip Skippen commanding the infantry, and Henry Ireton and Oliver Cromwell commanding the cavalry wings, utterly destroyed the main royalist army. Charles I and his nephew, Prince Rupert, escaped the battle with a fraction of the force they'd started with. Thousands had surrendered, and another thousand had been killed in the fighting or the rout. Alongside the bulk of his fighting men, the king had lost all his artillery, thousands of weapons, ammunition for both, and, vitally important to the political front of the civil war, his personal correspondence. For Parliament, Naseby was an incredible success. The new model army, an amalgamation of several different forces led by newly appointed men, had exceeded all expectations. It also dashed the hopes of some of its critics, particularly the Presbyterian faction in Parliament and the Scottish Covenanters, who saw in the army's success the weakening of their own political influence. But in terms of the war effort, victory was now just a matter of time. For all intents and purposes, the king had just lost the war. As we'll see in today's episode, he would keep fighting for another year, but he couldn't replace most of what he'd lost at Naseby. Charles had already lost access to the north. Naseby closed off the Midlands too. Wales and the southwest remained in royalist hands, but they were already straining under the demands of war. Recruits were drying up. Taxes were falling short. To put it simply, the king was in dire straits. Today, we're going to end the English Civil War. The first one, at least. Four days after Naseby, Fairfax recaptured Leicester, before turning the new model army south. With the king's own army shattered and in flight, his target was now the greatest concentration of royalist military might in England, 11,000 men under the General of the West, Lord Goring. Goring had continued his ineffective siege of Taunton throughout the disaster at Naseby, and when he learnt that Fairfax was on the way, he abandoned the siege. Goring wanted to gather his forces to confront the new model army, but Charles wrote to him and ordered him to stay defensive until the king's remaining army could join him. Goring moved his army to secure control of North Somerset and to protect Bristol but when he lifted the siege of Taunton, the garrison of Taunton, at least 4,000 men, left the town and linked up with Fairfax, further expanding the new model army as it advanced on the outnumbered Goring. The new model army caught up with Goring late on the 10th of July, near the town of Langport. Fairfax only commanded a portion of the entire army, others had been split off to try and corral Goring, and his men were exhausted and low on supplies. But when Fairfax learnt that Goring was attempting to escape, he ordered an attack to prevent it. 
The Battle of Langport was a defeat for Goring, but while he managed to withdraw most of his army, his losses were severe enough that he could do little else but move west into Devon. Here, he remained passive, before resigning his commission in November and sailing to exile in France. Parliament quickly secured several vital strongholds, including Bath, and effectively closed off the southwest from the king. Bristol itself was Fairfax's target now. Elsewhere, Charles's position was also collapsing. Wales, which had been a bedrock of royalism for most of the war, rejected him. Recruits raised for his army were instead placed under local control, and these local leaders declared that their continued loyalty to the king was conditional. Charles went out of his way to visit Cardiff in August to meet with these supposed royalists, and they demanded a whole host of promises from the king. Charles's leading man in Wales, Charles Gerard, had become deeply unpopular. His garrisons were usually commanded by Englishmen, not Welshmen. He ordered scorched earth policies to deny resources to Parliament, never mind the losses for the people. One of the local leaders' conditions was that Gerard, along with several commanders and even a few garrisons, would be removed from Wales. No further impositions or tax increases would be levied on Wales, and the king would make a personal declaration of support for the Protestant faith. Charles readily agreed to these terms, which is itself a sign of how weak his position had become. But even with these promises, that wasn't enough to keep the Welsh on side. Lord Astley, the infantry commander at Naseby, was appointed to replace Gerard, but soon Parliament swept through the Principality. Those local leaders who Charles had attempted to sway back to his side now looked to Parliament to protect them from, quote, papists, heavy taxes, acquisitive garrisons, and other burdens, end quote. Those mentions of religion reared their head again as yet another piece of fallout from Naseby, because in the king's correspondence, which was captured after the battle, was deeply damning evidence of Charles's wider strategy and his personal opinions, published in the king's cabinet opened by parliamentary printers. His dislike of parliamentary rule and his frustrations with his subjects Private thoughts shared by a husband to his wife painted a picture of a king contemptuous of, and dangerous to, the rights of his subjects. His hopes for foreign intervention, from his uncle, Christian IV of Denmark, from his nephew, Louis XIV of France, from the Prince of Orange, from the Duke of Lorraine, and, most damningly, from the Irish Confederates, were all laid out in black and white. His dealings with the Irish Confederates and the secret authority he had granted the Earl of Glamorgan to make religious concessions damned him in the eyes of many of his Protestant subjects. Once again, Charles had revealed his duplicity, his willingness to compromise with Catholics, to invite them into the kingdom, and so threaten the Protestant religion. The return of these questions of faith came at the worst possible time for the king. The cessation of arms had been unpopular, but at least that had been agreed when Charles was, if not winning, not obviously losing. Now, after Naseby, he was obviously losing. Defections and desertions racked what was left of the royalist military. Rupert, commanding the defence of Bristol now, wrote to a courtier in the full knowledge 
that what he wrote would be passed on to his uncle. He declared that, quote, His Majesty hath now no way left to preserve his posterity, kingdom, and nobility, but by a treaty. This courtier was the Duke of Richmond, a close friend of Rupert, but according to the Prince's biography by Ian Roy, Rupert was dallying with Richmond's wife, Mary, Duchess of Richmond. This was formerly Mary Villiers, the daughter of George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. Anyway, that's just an interesting piece of gossip. When, as Rupert predicted, this note was read to Charles, the king dismissed the advice out of hand. Even as grim as his cause looked, he was determined to fight. This was despite admitting to Rupert in a letter that his chances were low. Quote, There is no probability but of my ruin. Yet he seemed convinced that he would receive divine intervention. He knew, quote, As a Christian, that God will not suffer rebels and traitors to prosper, nor this cause to be overthrown. Now, some might suggest that Charles's God had made his will very clear at, I don't know, Marston Moor, or Naseby, or Langport. But I suppose everyone is the main character of their own story. Charles was, therefore, convinced that the Almighty would ensure that terms would be agreed with the Irish, and Montrose would lead an army of Highlanders out of Scotland, and together his two other kingdoms would restore order in his third and Charles would be returned to his rightful place, with his authority and power restored. Ian Gentles calls this the mirage of a Celtic rescue. In reality, the rest of the war, and the rest of this episode, will be the new model army mopping up royalist remnants. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. As the new model army formed up outside Bristol and prepared to put the great city to siege, Fairfax sent Prince Rupert a message. He respected Rupert as a veteran of the Thirty Years' War who had fought and bled for Protestantism, and Fairfax wanted to avoid further violence if it could be helped. 
he promised the prince that Parliament had no intention of revolution. The king would remain the king. He just needed to be better advised by Parliament, the great council of the kingdom. Rupert, who was well aware that continued fighting was effectively pointless, nevertheless stood by his uncle and refused to surrender the city. Fairfax's army, reduced at first to 5,000, but soon reinforced up to 10,000, began its bombardment, which lasted for six days. But the fortifications of Bristol were too thick and resilient to crack under the artillery barrage. Instead, Fairfax ordered that the walls be scaled with ladders. With his garrison heavily outnumbered, disease-ridden, low on morale, and with little chance of rescue from outside forces, lost control of the walls. Only then did Rupert surrender Bristol. He was treated respectfully by Fairfax and Cromwell, and the prince told the parliamentarians that he would try and convince his uncle to come to terms, to forge a, quote, happy peace. Then he was allowed to leave unmolested. In some ways, Bristol surpassed the royalist capital of Oxford in terms of importance. It was a valuable port, manufacturing centre, it had a large population and strong defences, and it sat at a key position between the king's remaining territories in the southwest and in Wales. So when Charles heard the news that it had fallen, he was beyond furious. Never mind that Rupert's position was untenable, never mind that he was outnumbered and outgunned and unsupported. The word treachery began to be bandied about. Maybe, maybe, Rupert had been bought. After all, Parliament had just voted to pay Rupert and Maurice's brother, the Elector Palatine, Charles Louis, a pension to support his stay in England. Because the deposed Elector Palatine had been invited to London by Parliament, where he had sworn the Solemn League and Covenant, and he just happened to be living in the Palace of Whitehall. Charles Louis, through his mother Elizabeth, was in line to the English, Scottish and Irish thrones. In fact, if Charles and his children were disinherited for whatever reason, he would be the next in line for the crown. For that matter, Rupert would shoot up the line of succession as well. Rumours spread, coalesced, and found eager mouthpieces in Rupert's enemies among the royalists. Maybe, just maybe, Rupert had simply given up Bristol as part of a conspiracy to dethrone Charles and replace him with his nephew, the Elector Palatine. Well, maybe it was the stress of everything falling apart, but Charles bought these rumours. He turned on his nephew, who had supported him and fought for him loyally for years, dismissed him by letter, implying that he was a traitor, and sending word to his agents in Oxford to arrest the prince once he arrived. For what it's worth, I don't believe there was a conspiracy between Rupert and Parliament, and I haven't seen that suggested by a modern historian either. There didn't need to be a conspiracy. Bristol would have fallen, and the prince's advice to his uncle to come to terms with Parliament was just good advice. Instead, I see a royalist cause falling apart and a search for scapegoats. Because Rupert was nothing but faithful to the Stuart dynasty for the rest of his life, and there's no indication he ever desired the throne. On the other hand, 
I'm not convinced that Charles Louis wasn't trying to steal his uncle's fancy chair, or at the very least make himself very publicly available in case it became vacant. Charles certainly believed that this was his intention. As soon as the elector arrived in England, he wrote to his nephew and demanded to know why a potential claimant to his throne had come to his kingdom in such unstable times. This suspicion, combined with his public allegiance to the king's enemies, meant that Charles never forgave or trusted Charles Louis again. These suspicions have been shared by historians ever since, but recently, Dr. Thomas Pert has been more sympathetic to the elector, pointing out that he had very convincing reasons to cosy up to Parliament. In his article, which is open access and available to anyone for free, even if you don't have access to a university library, the link will be in the description, it's well worth a read, the elector's main overriding priority was the survival of his family and receiving the resources needed to restore his position in the Holy Roman Empire. This, by necessity, meant gaining the financial, military, and political resources controlled by Parliament. To get these assets, the elector went on a diplomatic offensive to appeal to his uncle's enemies. He spoke of the shared Calvinist cause between the English, Scots, and Palatinate, and swore to the Solemn League and Covenant. While these would also mean that he was looked on favourably in the event that the throne became vacant, Pert points out that Charles Louis would actually apply to leave England a full three weeks before Parliament began to abolish the monarchy. But that's a story for next season. In the meantime, Charles had led his army out of Wales with the intention of linking up with the Marquis of Montrose in Scotland, but he diverted to attempt to relieve the ongoing siege of Chester. Making contact with Sir Marmaduke Langdale inside the city, he ordered him to ride out against Chester's attackers from behind as they prepared to face Charles's army. Langdale's sally failed spectacularly. His force was cut to pieces by a countercharge. It's commonly said that Charles was in a position to see this happen, which must have been one hell of a blow to his hopes. Speaking of blows to hopes, this bad news was swiftly followed by the word of Philippor. Montrose's army had been caught and utterly destroyed by David Leslie. Montrose's year of victories was over, and any hope for royalist reinforcements from Scotland died with his army. It was no longer feasible, if it ever had been, for the king to ride to Scotland. With Chester on the brink of falling, Bristol already having fallen, the royalists had only two major cities left, the capital at Oxford and Newark. Charles rode to Newark. Rupert, Maurice, plus 200 of their closest friends, rode all the way to Newark to meet with the king. Here, Rupert was court-martialed, which found in his favour, and he angrily confronted his uncle for believing the rumours of his enemies and for refusing to see sense over the future of the war. The two men were reconciled when Charles accepted that there was no evidence of a conspiracy between Parliament and his nephews. Well, between Rupert and Maurice, anyway. In the final months of 1645, Fairfax and his new model army cleaned up in the West. Several castles and fortified houses had held out for years at this point, and only now began to fall in quick succession. 
in a worrying sign of things to come, when Basing House fell to the forces of Cromwell, many of its Catholic defenders, and suspected Catholic defenders, were killed without mercy. In contrast, when Fairfax stormed Tiverton, a town in Devon with a reputation for Catholic holdouts, its defenders were given quarter on Fairfax's direct orders. As 1645 turned to 1646, the advance of the new model army continued unrestrained by devastating losses to the elements, to disease, and to desertion. Near Torrington, Sir Ralph Hopton, now Lord Hopton, I should say, clashed with Fairfax in a night battle. Their forces were roughly matched, with Fairfax slowly gaining an advantage, when Hopton's gunpowder store, held in Tonnington Church along with the prisoners, detonated, ignited by a stray shot. Hopton really has the worst luck with his gunpowder, doesn't he? The explosion was so powerful, it launched the lead lattice of the church window across the battlefield, almost landing on Fairfax himself. The Royalists routed. Hopton salvaged enough men to remain in the field, but his force was not enough to match the new model army. Now, the only Royalist field army was young Prince Charles's force in Cornwall, only about 6,000 strong. This could be a problem for Parliament. Cornwall was staunchly Royalist, and Fairfax was very wary of a French invasion to aid the King, which, if it happened, would likely land nearby. So, a propaganda campaign was begun. All of his Cornish prisoners were released and paid two shillings, and Cornish preachers travelled ahead of the army, spreading word that the king was summoning French and Irish Catholics to land in Cornwall. The campaign worked like a charm. Garrisons surrendered without a fight, staunch holdouts like Exeter finally gave up, local elites switched sides, and Prince Charles was forced to flee to the Isles of Scilly. Hopton himself surrendered on the 12th of March, disbanding his army after receiving very generous terms from Fairfax. There was very little fight left in the Royalists now. Lord Astley was ordered by the King, now back in Oxford, to bring his remaining army, the last real army the Royalists had, only 3,000 men, to Oxford to reinforce the capital. But he was intercepted and captured en route. The 67-year-old veteran famously told the parliamentarians, like a wise old uncle talking to children, quote, You have now done your work and may go to play, unless you will fall out amongst yourselves. End quote. Fairfax was making his own way to Oxford now, not to reinforce it, but to capture it. Before he reached it, Parliament ordered a day of thanksgiving on the 2nd of April to celebrate the wild success which the new model army had achieved since it took to the field. The preacher, Hugh Peters, was invited to speak. I'll quote directly from Ian Gentle's great book, The English Revolution and the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, because it nicely prepares the ground for the coming split between the army that will win the war and the politicians who were expected to win the peace. Quote, In his three-hour sermon, he exalted the new model soldiers, the very offscourings of the world, who had delivered the nation from bondage and brought the blessings of peace. The challenge was now for the politicians to erect a just social order which would provide decent care for the sick and the poor, 
and a better justice system. With the laws in English, the courts decentralised, and imprisonment for debt abolished. It was a vision that was unfortunately shared by few other parliamentarians. Before Fairfax reached the outskirts of Oxford, reality finally set in for Charles. This was it. He had no more armies, up his sleeves or otherwise. His few remaining garrisons were isolated and small. Chester had finally surrendered at the start of February, leaving him without any significant port for Irish reinforcements to land. And as we know, that agreement was still being negotiated. Montrose hadn't given up in Scotland, but his army had been destroyed. Alistair McCullough was still rampaging through Campbell lands, but his focus was, as always, on local Highland politics, and he wasn't going to give that up just to march hundreds of miles south. Henrietta Maria was in Paris, working on Mazarin and appealing for aid, but that aid hadn't materialised. The king hadn't given up hope of eventual victory. He was still king, and he was confident that he could, somehow, turn the tables on his enemies. But right now, with the new model army en route to surround his capital, Charles decided to run. He changed out of his sumptuous clothes, garments fit for a king, and into the clothes of a servant. He slipped out of the city with just a few companions and set off for London. He got within ten miles of the city before he changed his mind. He would go into exile on the continent, rally support, and return at the head of an army. So he set off for King's Lynn to find a ship. Ten miles away from King's Lynn, Charles spent four days burning his papers and deciding what to do. And he changed his mind again. This time, he was set on his decision. Staying off the main roads, he made his way north. Not to rendezvous with Montrose in Scotland. Not to recruit an army in the north. No. He turned up at the town of Southwell, in Nottinghamshire, very nearby Newark. And what was at Southwell? The Earl of Leathen's Army of the Covenant. He surrendered himself over to the man who'd been there at the start of all of this, all the way back in the 1630s, when Leven had been just Alexander Leslie. Once in the custody of the Scots, he sent out orders to his remaining followers to stand down. Oxford and Newark both surrendered. Up in Scotland, Montrose received these orders with reluctance, but once he received promises for his men's safety, he disbanded those few soldiers under his command and sailed out of the kingdom. In Ireland, the news came like a thunderbolt to Ormond and the peace faction of the Confederate Executive Council. The English Civil War was over. But Charles might have surrendered, but he hadn't given up. He'd handed himself over to the Scots for a reason. He was well aware of the divisions between his enemies, and since he didn't have an army anymore, he'd just have to fight this war by other means. Thank you to my House of Lords, including, but not limited to, the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bristol, Bill Winkis, the Marquess of Dorset, Thomas Kessler, and the Earl of Waldegrave, Dave Cardena. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, 
please recommend it to a friend, or post about the show on social media. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.